So we're going to look at uh, 2 Timothy 3 in the entirety of the chapter. Um, I know I kind of got into 2 Chapter 3 the last time I was here. Jeff gave me permission to backtrack a little bit. Uh, for those of you that weren't here or it's your first time, uh, we'll look at 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 9 a little bit, and then um, verses 10 through uh, 17 a little bit longer. So uh, 2 Timothy 3, verses 1, um, where he, he goes into uh, end times, last days kind of stuff. You must understand this, that in the last days, distressing times will come, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, inhuman, implacable, slanderers, profligates, brutes, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to the outward form of godliness but denying its power. Avoid them, for among them are those who make their way into households and captivate silly women, overwhelmed by their sins and swayed by all kinds of desires who are always being instructed and can never arrive at a knowledge of the truth. As Yannis and Yambres opposed Moses, so these people of corrupt mind and counterfeit faith also oppose the truth. But they will not make much progress because, as in the case of those two men, their folly will become plain to everyone. So as I was reading this, it made me wonder, um, do the end times make people wicked or do wicked people make the end times? Sort of like a chicken or the egg syndrome here. Um, Either way, the point remains that how people act matters. No matter when we live in human history, what we do with our day, with our thoughts, with our actions, it matters. Uh, The Bible tells us that those things are recorded. Uh, (laughs) That makes me nervous. Um, uh, But they are. They're recorded. In the book of life, as we've seen in Revelation. Um, So what we do, it matters. And I love this quote from St. Augustine that I've used frequently, where Augustine said, we are the times in which we live, right? It's not someone else's problem, even though we think it is. Them, we are the times in which we live. We are what things are in some way. We have a responsibility. And so Paul is pointing to these end times that whenever they occur, um, and we could very well be in them right now, like we said last time, uh, to, to an increasing degree, but whatever that time frame is, Paul says those times will be distressing. They will be very difficult. Even um, Jesus, which I'll get into in a minute, in Matthew 24, Jesus talks about the last days that they will be worse before they get, get better on earth. Uh, that's, that's a summary of what he's saying. But as Paul says in verses 2 through 4 here, you could summarize a lot of this um, listing almost as anti-fruits of the Spirit, really fruits of the flesh. You could summarize this with the word pride. It's all about self. It's all about me, my will over thy will. Um, but it isn't just people in general who are uh, like this to an increasing degree. It's, you look at verse 5, 
Paul makes the illusion that it's religious people, religious teachers, religious leaders, who have an outward form of godliness, but they deny the power of God. So there might be a preponderance of people in the last days who are wicked, like the days of Noah. Jesus tells us that's how it will be. But it will also be a preponderance of people that claim to be Christians or religious leaders of some sort who profess God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. Um, as a pastor, that's the kind of thing that keeps me up at night. Not me personally. I feel, I feel very confident and assured in my <laughs> salvation. But, I mean, before I went into seminary, uh, I felt the call to do that. I took that very seriously because when you get up and teach this sort of stuff, there's a lot on the line, right? There's eternal stuff we're talking about here. And if you get it wrong, there's a lot. You've got blood on your hands in a sense as a leader, as a shepherd, right? And so it's sort of like in James where James says, hey, teachers, of the, uh, teachers will be held to a greater strictness. Uh, and that's what uh, Paul is alluding to here, that those uh, who claim to be preachers, teachers of the gospel, but look at the fruit of their lives, it's self-driven, it's reckless, they say they love God, but they love pleasure, etc., etc. Avoid people like that, Paul says to young Timothy. Because Timothy, you are a godly teacher, you are a godly pastor, you are maybe 25 years old. And you are the opposite of what I'm listing here. So avoid false teachers of any kind. Um, go into verse 3 and the uh, end times listing and things like that. Generations of people point to this passage uh, as a harbinger of end time. Now, on one hand, you read this and think, well, people have been like this since the fall, Right? And people will continue to be like this, I think, until the Lord returns. Um, Paul makes a reference to end times in 1 Timothy 4.1. Uh, he invokes Old Testament scripture like Isaiah 2.2, Micah 4.1, um, which is not just a cynical view of the end times, but a, a future hope, a promise of restoration, that pointing toward the day when heaven and earth become one. As we see in Revelation, the city of God coming to earth. The earth is not destroyed, but it is restored to its fullness. Um, we see that God is not opposed to the material, to the physical, but that God will restore and renew all things. Um, so that's that Old Testament Hebrew hope. That's also our hope as Christians. Um, now, of course, as you read the New Testament, as I have, uh, the apostles... All of them seem to have an end times. Hey, the Lord's coming soon, right? John says that. Peter says that. Be on guard. The Lord's coming soon. Now, in our temporal mindset, we live in the linear flow of time. Uh, we read that and go, 2,000 years have gone by. He hasn't come back yet. But in their mind, end times wasn't... I mean, Jesus said, keep your lamp full of oil. So we know there's a readiness. That's probably what they're getting at. We should have a readiness. Um, but typically in the Christian church, end times really meant Jesus' ascension to his eventual second coming. We're in that era 
of end times, clearly, because he hasn't returned yet. Um, And John Wesley taught that the last days began at the time of Christ's death. It's kind of like a countdown clock um, until Christ would come again. So um, I know I've talked about this before, but we will, we're closer than we've ever been. And um, Paul says one sign of that could be an enormous amount of hypocritical religious people to increasing amounts. And Paul um, would teach on this in 2 Timothy about uh, uh, false prophets. Even Jesus said in the last days there would be many people running around claiming be speaking for me, but they're not. So you see Paul touching on that. And then you go into verses 2 through 5 again, and you see this listing. In the ancient world, honor and honor code is a big deal. And it still is in Middle East culture, Eastern culture. Um, this is a list of people who are dishonorable. Um, so to uh, an Eastern mindset, this kind of person would be reprehensible, a person you just avoid. Um, ancient people love to, uh, to use a listing of repetition. So Paul would do this. We call it a run-on sentence. <laughs> Paul uh, likes, that's a one mark of Paul's writing. You see this listing. He does this a lot. A lot of times we know Paul wrote it because Paul said, I, Paul, an apostle. Um, so you can see his style come through. Uh, okay, the, the last day stuff, I'll touch on this again like I did last time. In Matthew 24, uh, verses 36 through uh, 39, Jesus indicates that the last days, what you would see at a preponderance of false teachers, um, well, I'll just read what he says. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. So only the Father in heaven knows when Jesus will return. When he comes, it will catch the world off guard. Most people will not be prepared for it. Um, because no one knows. And Jesus says here, For as the days of Noah were so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. I have a friend from seminary that's a a biblical scholar, and I asked him, because when I read this stuff about the last days, the flood or days of Noah, um, the implication is to me is that on one hand you read that and go, it sounds like Jesus is saying, people were just living their lives. They were eating, they were drinking, they were getting married, etc., but I asked him, it seems like the Greek is saying it was all evil. It was evil eating. It was evil drinking. It was evil marriage, evil giving in marriage. It was all self-indulgent. And he tended to agree because Jesus is saying, hey, in the days of Noah, everything was wicked. It was so wicked God couldn't stand it and had to wipe everything out. So even the, the mundane things like eating and drinking and doing business and the holy things like marriage is a holy thing. It was all wicked Um, until the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So, too, will be the coming of the Son of Man. So, uh, not to be Debbie Downer, but (laughs) that's what Jesus says it will be like before he comes back.
And Jesus, you know, the disciples back then asked, Lord, when's it, what's it going to look like? How are we going to know? Right? That's what we would ask if we were there with him. I'd want to know. How do we know? And he gives a very Jesus answer that says, hey, just as a, the fig tree has buds on it, then you know the time is at hand. Right? To us, you're like, could have used a date, but um, I'll work with that. He's saying, look, when the fruit of Noah, days of Noah, are popping out, that's when you know. It's not with the wars, not the rumors of wars. That stuff is always going to happen. But when you see the fruit, the inherent fruit of wickedness that seems to be everywhere, especially among, Paul says here, religious leaders, that's when you know it's bad. Now we're going to look at verse 10 and the rest of chapter 3. Um, so Paul shifts here in his language and gets um, from talking about others, and he gets first person. Now you, Timothy, you have observed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering, the things that have happened. So you see this listing again. Paul likes to do this. He's pointing to his example. You've seen these sufferings that have happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. What persecutions I endured, yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. Indeed, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But wicked people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. And how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Another shift here we'll get into. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. So verse 10, Paul is pointing to his example He's pointing to his witness. You and I have heard the phrase, don't do as I do, do as I say. Terrible advice, horrible cliche. Uh, No, you should do as people do, not as they say. I've learned especially lately, don't watch what people say, watch what they do. Because what they do shows what they believe. This is especially true with with politicians. Don't listen to what they say, watch what they do. Because it shows their real motivation. So Paul is saying here, watch with my life, my life that you have witnessed these past many years, and emulate it. So Paul was, he's not being braggadocious. He's being very godly and modest in his witness and saying, hey, all that I've learned I've received from the Lord, now you do the same. Now watch how I've lived. Um, he's saying, you've witnessed the hardships I've endured. Uh, many times we know Timothy probably brought Paul, assistance, food, clothing. Paul, uh, Timothy very well could have delivered uh, these letters that Paul was writing and helped circulate them. Um, in verse 12, a, a recurring theme of Paul and the apostles um, is that anyone who seeks to live for Jesus not might be persecuted. You will be. You will be. It's to be expected. And Jesus 
repeatedly taught that. Uh, he's, you know, you're not of this world. You're children of the light. This is, a tr- this is a world of gray. It's a beautiful place, but it's not the real world. Uh, th- those that are Christians, our ultimate home is not here, right? So um, the kingdoms of darkness, of, of Satan, of his demons, they hate us. They hate the church. They hate what we stand for. They hate what we say. Hate how we preach. Hate lead, leading worship. Um, all of these things. So our prayers have a great deal of effectiveness here on earth. It might not feel like it sometimes, but they do. And John Wesley rightly taught that it's primarily through our prayers that God changes the course of human history. So if you have a wayward son or daughter or situation and you feel like it's not getting anywhere, just keep praying. Because God, he hears every single one of them. Um, but again, back to, back to persecution. Um, we don't seek to create enemies. Paul never did. The apostles never did. Of course, Jesus never did. Well, he had enemies, but he didn't physically take them on, right? Our battle's not against flesh and blood. Um, but some people are opposed to the work of the Spirit. Um, and Christians throughout history, we have been persecuted for a reason. It does not happen by accident. Now, persecution in America is pretty light. Oh, someone didn't like my post on Facebook. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but in other countries of the world, people are dying. People are literally being killed today. Um, I have supported Voice of the Martyrs before. If you've ever given money to Voice of the Martyrs, it's a great organization. And they help support Christians around the world who um, are being persecuted. When I worked at Billy Graham, they did a program called My Hope, uh, in which they would spend money uh, to broadcast 30-minute messages across the country, like India, Pakistan, Lebanon, even Saudi Arabia. Uh, And um, the people in the TV stations would get killed. They'd come in and pull them out and kill them on the street. I, I I knew the people, some of them that got killed around the world for that. So, so we know it happens. And God bless these saints, these martyrs, because um, Paul points to the reason for these persecutions. It's uh, because uh, the world in which we live is opposed to the gospel, really. Um, then in verse 14, Paul shifts again to t- young Timothy and says, but as for you, um, continue to move in the direction that you have learned your whole life. Don't deviate from the foundation from which you started uh, and continue to go in that way of the faith you received as a child. Um, we know that Timothy's mother and grandmother were believers. Uh, they were no doubt praying for Timothy um, and the impact it made on uh Timothy was immeasurable. I talked to somebody just last night, a member of our church council, and he was talking about the importance of children's ministry. And he said, look, I I was away from this church for 40 years, and I came back because I remembered the stuff I learned as a child. Yeah, I slept through half of church with my dad in the pew, like I did, but somehow it hit me, right, through osmosis or something. Um, 
it, you can't replicate the when we get impacted as children how it changes the direction of 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 our lives uh, that seeds that get planted um uh, Paul uses this future indicative, this continue in, this is ongoing action. Continue on. It's not ending for you. Just keep going in, uh, in the direction you've been going. Don't, um, don't forget your witness. Don't forget, don't forget your, where you came from. Uh, when I was um, a kid, I went to First Baptist Church of Goldsboro, and uh, I went to Sunday school, Mrs. Smith, wonderful woman, and I still remember her name. And we learned Bible stories on the felt board. You guys ever have a felt board? <laughs> so I, I told teenagers, it's sort of like a TV screen, but it's not. And so I remember Joseph in the, t- in the many coat of many colors, and, and I learned all those stories, and I got a little plaque after second grade, and it said my name and the meaning of my name and Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 was on the little plaque. And I kept it on my wall my whole life, even when I went to college. And I wasn't the most Christian person in the world. And I kept it on my wall. And, um, and, I, and they gave me a little Ten Commandments bookmark, right? And I still have it. It's in my office up here. Uh, you know, when we receive these things as children, it makes such an impact. And that's why my wife is so um, passionate about seeing children learn the Bible it's because, for one, that's where the power is. And two, she knows that if you can make an impact at a young age, it, it will, what's, what's that, in Deuteronomy, teach a child in the way it should go, and they'll never deviate from it, right? Um, this is interesting. Uh, we homeschool our kids, and we use a, a, a curriculum called Sunlight, and it was written by missionaries. Um, so that when the children were with their parents in foreign countries, they would have a school curriculum. And it's been adapted since then for people like us here. But we learned in one, one day while we were doing sunlight that um, in communist countries, especially during the USSR days, either then or now, I'm not sure. <laughs> They're trying to, clearly trying to bring it back, I guess. Um, communist countries would, of course, punish adults for teaching, preaching Christianity. Uh, but usually it was prison, things of that nature. But this is true. If they caught you teaching children Christianity, they would kill you. They would just flat out kill you. Because they knew if you get them then, it's, there's nothing we can do about it, right? And so then they would turn on the indoctrination of children. It's awful. It's evil thing. But um, it's impossible to overturn. So Paul says here to Timothy, hey, from childhood, you've known the sacred writings. Um, Again, you see Paul here. He's not just saying, he's, of course, referring to Scripture. He's not referring, oh, it's just a dusty old book. It's not just sinful men who wrote it. Um, It's not just history on the page. But Paul and the apostles and Jesus all had a very high view of Scripture. And that's undeniable. There are a lot of clergy in the United Methodist Church today that would disagree, that disagree with that worldview that sees Scripture as low, that they have a very low opinion of it. Uh, and that's part of the problem we're in. It's just a flat-out truth. But 
You can track here Paul with Paul's thinking because he says, continue on the way, continue what you learned in these holy writings as a child. And then he says, all scripture is inspired by God, is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. Now, this is utterly fascinating. Whenever Paul uses the word scripture or graphe in Greek, he uses it interchangeably with Old Testament and new, what we see as New Testament Bible. Um, he uses, he, we'll see here in a second. He's referring to Old Testament scripture here, but the apostles did actually refer to the gospels and other apostles writing in their own writings. And they call it all scripture. So even at this early age, 60, 70, 80 AD, they were, these letters were circulating, the gospels were circulating. They regarded all of it as scripture even then. So they didn't wait for the canon of scripture to come, come about in about you know, roughly 300 AD, 350 AD. Um, so for example, Peter, in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, um, he, uh, Peter refers to one of Paul's writings, and he refers to it as scripture. You write that down if you want. 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, where he says this, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> so Peter's even saying, sometimes Paul can be convoluted, right? He's a genius, but uh, just bear with him. <laughs> um, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do to the other graphe scriptures. So even P- P- Peter here is saying, Paul's writing a scripture. Even if you don't understand it right now, it's scripture. Um, Peter, he refers to Paul's letters. He doesn't say which they were, but it's clear that even during Peter's day, these things were circulating. Peter had read them. Um, They were familiar to him. And he places these writings of Paul on the same level as Old Testament scripture. The Greek word graphe is used 51 times in the New Testament, and it refers to Old Testament writings in every other occurrence. So scripture was just a technical term used to refer to God's holy writ. Paul would also quote the Gospel of Luke at one point. Um, In 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul writes this, For the scriptures say, Do not keep an ox from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, those who work deserve their pay. So these two verses Paul quotes first, well, they're both from the Bible. The first one is Deuteronomy 25.4. Paul quotes that, the one about the ox. Don't keep an ox from eating. He's, he's telling Timothy, hey, if people are going to be involved in your church, that's great, but they have to earn their keep. They can't just be freeloaders. That's what he's exhorting Timothy to do. And then he says those who work deserve their pay. Well, that is a quote from Jesus. That's from Luke uh, 10.7. It's a direct quote. It's the exact same Greek you see in Luke. Um, 
so that's just interesting to me that um, Peter and Paul were quoting other uh, books of the Bible, uh, and they equated it all as Scripture. Um, This is significant because neither Paul nor Luke were among the original 12 apostles, right? Luke was a physician. Paul gets grandfathered in, rightfully so. And yet the writings of both of them are called Scripture. Um, So you see um, Scripture attesting to itself, corroborating itself, within itself, um, we can see that the apostles were reading, Paul was reading uh, other people's writing. Peter was reading his writing. They were reading all these gospels. They could say, hey, that wasn't true. I was there. You need to change that. Uh, It's clear that they were communicating with each other. And so people that say that the New Testament doesn't have a lot of veracity or uh, intellectual scrutiny, they really just don't know what they're talking about. Because the, the New Testament is actually the most attested ancient document in history. There's over 32,000 uh, fragments or pieces of the New Testament in existence today. Do you know how many copies are, there are of the annals of uh, Alexander the Great? Two. And even those come like almost a thousand years after he lived. So it's a real double standard with the Bible people have. They, they, they treat it differently than other works of antiquity when in fact... Uh, that's why the Dead Sea Scrolls were such a big deal, is because when um, they found an entire scroll of Isaiah that was 800 years older than anything we had, right? And then when you compared it to what's in your Bible, it was 99.8% the exact same. There was just a few gramma- or punctuation differences. Isn't that incredible? So it points to the fact that when these people copied these uh, copies of copies, they took it very seriously. They didn't do it wantonly. And so we can be assured that what we hold in our hands is, is very much the, the best of our ability to point back to what it was back then. So then we get to this part where Paul says these famous words I've already read, that scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So this idea that scripture is inspired by God, it is breathed by God. The Holy Spirit spoke through these authors. Um, 66 books, all containing, beginning and ending with a wedding, which I think is fascinating, um, all pointing to one person. You see, repeatedly pointing to Jesus. Uh, there are over 86 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus, and he fulfilled every single one. It's mathematically impossible. There's no chance anyone could ever do it. Many of those prophecies were written over 1,000, 1,500 years before he was even born. It's just incredible. Anyway, Scripture is inspired by God. And John Wesley gave a really good argument I found this week that, that as to how the Bible must be given by divine inspiration. And he gives a really good, really good uh, argument. He says here, the Bible must be the invention either, one, of good men or angels, two, bad men or devils, or three, of God. 
One, good men are angels. It could not be the invention of good men or angels. They neither would nor could make a book because if they said, thus says the Lord, they'd be lying the whole time they wrote it because it was their own invention. So it'd be a book based on lie. It could not be the invention of bad men or devils for they would not make a book which commands all duty to God, forbids sin because they want us to sin and condemns their souls to hell to all eternity, so they wouldn't help create a book like this. Therefore, he draws the conclusion, it must be given by divine inspiration. And there's a real mystery to that. But you see uh, Jesus even, of course, quoting uh, Scripture repeatedly. He was fond of Deuteronomy. He quoted the Psalms frequently, Isaiah, Genesis, um, and it's interesting that Paul here says that Scripture is used for teaching reproof. Um, when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness three times, how does he combat those temptations? He speaks the word, right? He quotes the word back to the, to the devil. And that's the main way uh, we fight him back is through the word of God. And um, it is useful in that way. It's useful in that it... It helps correct us that, um, in a sense, we should not be interpreting Scripture. We should be letting Scripture interpret us, right? That's where it starts. If you come at the Bible with uh, an, an attitude of, what can I get out of this? It's going to be a little bit upside down for you at first. It needs to come from a place of, Lord, search me and know me. Root out within me what's is evil or wicked. Show me what I need to know. Come at it from a place of submission, of, of listening. And then later you can do the application stuff, right? But um, So it's useful for training and reproof uh, for correction. We know that Wesley was famously a person of, he said, a man of one book. He called himself a Bible bigot. Um, he's being facetious. Um, but... But clearly, he wasn't uh, a fundamentalist in the worst sense of the word. He wasn't beating people over the head with a Bible. He was a well-educated person. He wants us to use our intellect and our reason to read all sorts of things. But that scripture is primary. It's the cry of the Reformation, right? It's what's overarching everything else. Sola Scriptura. Um, and um, it's authoritative. It's true. And we need that authority in our lives, especially in the church today. Uh, many people today are pointing to authority of all sorts. Uh, and it's gotten us in a lot of trouble. You know, we know that the Wesleyan quadrilateral, if you've heard that phrase, there's four ways to, not that Wesley, well, it was actually Thomas Outler who, Albert Outler, who coined the phrase in the 1960s, that there's four ways to determine the will of God. Uh, scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. And you, you follow those ways to get... But it always starts with Scripture, right? Scripture, tradition, experience, reason. Now, nowadays, in the postmodern world, the way we determine the will of God is experience, 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 experience. <laughs> or emotion, 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 emotion. Um, and uh, it gets us in a, in a crazy place, in, a, in, in the churches, at least. Um, because we need that guidance, we need that correction, we need guardrails on the road that keeps us in line. 
And uh, the word scripture uh, means rule, rule of life. And that's what it's there to do. It's not there to spoil our fun and to rain on our parade and turn over our birthday cake. Um, He's there to bless us, to help us, to lead us in love, to lead us in holiness, to make us a better people, to make us more like Jesus. That's what God inspired Scripture to do for us. Um, So it exists for our glory. I guess we're at the end of chapter 3. I want to say a prayer for us and uh, close it out. So let's pray.